morning, church. Uh, today's reading is from Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32. I'm reading from the NIV. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must do no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands. They may have something to share with those in need. Not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to each other, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, church. Great, it's so good to be here with you. Um, my name is Joel, and uh, uh, it is a genuine uh, honor and privilege to get to share from God's Word uh, to you today. Uh, last year, I got the gift uh, of a three-month sabbatical from Christchurch, London. And uh, the first Sunday, we weren't obliged to come to or go to our home church. Uh, Dee and I, um, we, we discussed, uh, where do we want to go first? What, what church do we want to try out first? And uh, we were unanimous in deciding that um, we wanted to go to uh, KXC. And there, that's a joke, by the way. <laughs> wow. No, uh, we came to reality. Uh, we just have the highest uh, respect and regard for Bijan and Michelle. Um, actually, our friendship has been one of the highlights of the last few years, getting to know both of them and uh, really feel like we're sort of fellow laborers in Christ. So, um, yeah, it's just a joy to be able to be here, be invited to share. And uh, we have the highest regard for uh, this church and this family of uh, churches. Uh, we, uh, Dee and I, we love this city. Uh, we love doing ministry here uh, in London. But to know that there are churches like yourselves who are uh, working for the gospel uh, in this place, in this city that we love so much, it really is a, an honor to be working alongside you in that, and I, I just want to encourage you just to keep doing what you're doing. Uh, you're doing incredible things. Whether you're in London for a chapter, for a season, uh, or whether you feel like you're here for the long haul, you're here to stay, um, commit yourself to this church, get stuck in, uh, join us in trying to seek the renewal of this place that we call home. Uh, it is a real joy to, to be doing that uh, with you. Um, now, uh, before we get to the passage that we're going to be looking through today in Ephesians, let's just uh, quickly remind ourselves of the journey that Paul has taken us on so far. So in chapter one, Paul, in some ways, introduces the foundational idea of his letter, that Jesus is bringing reconciliation and unity to all things in heaven and on earth, that all of the brokenness the consequences of the fall, all of the sin have now been redeemed through him. Then in chapter 2, we read that through the cross, Jesus has reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God, and the hostility between Jew and Gentile, between humanity itself, has also been destroyed. And this is Paul laying out what Jesus has done through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Reconciliation between God and humanity, and between humanity itself. Then in chapter 3, Paul prays. And I, I think this is really important. I don't think this is just Paul uh, sort of praying out of a sense of love for the Ephesian church, although I think it is that. I think he's praying something really important because he's just laid out his 
kind of theological vision. And he's about to talk in chapter four about how we should live therefore. But sandwiched between the two is this prayer. And I want to read part of it to you. I'm sure you've gone through it already uh, in this series, but it's the most beautiful prayer. This is what it says. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. What an amazing prayer. Now, why is this important? What Paul is doing is before he's about to encourage followers of Jesus to live in a certain way, he's reminding us that how we live is always rooted in and flows from the love God already has for you. This love that is so wide and long and high and deep. Paul then, in chapter 4, implores the reader to take off the old self, to grow in maturity, uh, and to take off the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. And instead, we're to become uh, the new self, to put on the new self, and become imitators of God as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us. Everything that Paul is about to talk about, the behavior, the actions, the thought patterns, the relational dynamics, is all rooted in love. And at the start of chapter 4, Paul urges the readers to get the vision for this. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, you've been given this new identity. You've received this love. Now go and live it out. And I want just to emphasize this at the start because I think theologically we might understand this, but I do think we can have a propensity to flip this around. Instead of God's love being the fuel for how we live, we think that how we live determines God's love for us. And that can happen for a multitude of different reasons. It could be how we've experienced love ourselves, either from partners or parents. Or it could be just maybe theological thinking that we've kind of absorbed growing up and it's it's still with us, it's still in our bodies, though we know it's not right. And this tendency, tendency in us to feel like we've got to perform or strive to both be loved and have an identity that is worth something. This idea we've got to strive for those things, that is not the gospel. His love and this new identity is a gift. It's all grace. And as we go on to think about character, behavior, action, uh, all these amazing things that are really important, above anything else, my prayer is that you will grasp how wide and long and high and deep is God's love for you. Like right now, in this moment. And when we get to this passage in uh, chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, Paul begins to get specific. What does it look like to live a life of love? What constitutes the new self? What characteristics and habits will, di- dis- will distinguish the new humanity? And what temptations will entice us to fall back into the patterns of the old self? Well, like in other letters of Paul, we get a set of characteristics associated with the old self, and with the new self. But before he does this, before he lays this out, he frames this whole thing within the context of community. His first example is to tell the truth to your neighbor because we are all members of the one body. This is not an individualistic list of self-help tips to help you live your best and beautiful life. 
This is how this new humanity with this new family is to live out the reconciliation that Jesus has brought. And here's some of the things that he pulls out. And and notice they are all primarily relational in nature. Things that will either bring people together, reconcile people, or pull them apart. The way of the old self, things like lying, stealing, unwholesome talk, bitterness, rage, malice, anger. And the new self, truth, anger without sin, honest work, generosity, encouragement, kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. And I want to just spend some time, there's so many things we could talk about, so many amazing themes in this list that Paul gives us, but I want to spend some time focusing on something that Paul seems to acknowledge that we will do, but also tells us not to do. Something that appears to be both part of the old self, but also the new self. And so, and this thing can so often create division, not reconciliation between this new humanity, and that is anger. In verse 26, he says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down down while you are still angry. And do not let the devil get a foothold. And in the ESV, it's even more affirming. It says, Be angry and do not sin. And in the verse 31, he says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, in both cases, Paul is using the same Greek word. One is just a noun form, the other the verb. So what is going on here? What is Paul trying to communicate to us? Because it it, it could be, or seem to be, a contradiction here. Now anger is a complicated and powerful emotion. One author described it as a drawn sword that leaves a world strewn with casualties. And for some of us, we will be living with the very real consequences of anger. Regrets at moments in your life where anger has impacted your relationships, moments you wish you could take back. Or the pain of moments where you wish others had treated you or responded to you in a different way. And even when this kind of initial flash, this initial emotion fades, anger impacts marriages, families, friendships, communities, and nations. And so how do we discern whether the anger that we experience is more akin to the old self or the new self? How do we be angry and not sin? And to tease out the difference, I want us to think through uh, what could be the cause and the expression of anger when we're living out of the old self and the new self. So firstly, what are the causes of anger that are more a reflection of the old self? Now, as we read through the story of Scripture, Anger and its consequences are just all over the place. The Bible is a very real story, and it's just everywhere. Christopher Ash and Steve Midgley, in their book, The Heart of Anger, they highlight the four main ways anger triggers people in Scripture. And they are firstly the loss of control. I need to control everything because if I don't, it's just all going to unravel. I fear the unknown. I trust in myself, excuse me, and not in God. Secondly, losing or a desire for possessions. This sense that I deserve this thing that gives me status or security or comfort or wealth. It's like you've earned it, it's yours, no one else can have it. Thirdly, sexual desire. The horrific consequences of lust and abuse. And finally, reputation. The threat of losing this identity you've built up for yourself, thinking that your value and worth is predicated on this image or what others think of you. Control, possessions, 
sex and reputation. From what we read in Scripture, and when we feel anger rising in us, it is usually because we think we deserve something we're not getting, and pride is awoken in us. Or we're going to lose something in which we've placed our trust, and we're crippled by fear. And I think when we think through and dissect those four things and how often we experience anger, I think anger in the old self is mostly driven by pride or fear. And both of those things, they revealed this lack of trust in God. They are the fruit of not fully embracing this love that we have from Jesus, this identity that comes from being part of his new family. But if those are the causes of anger, what about the expression of anger? Well, I think you can overexpress anger and under-express anger. And I think Paul is actually speaking to some of this in this passage. Examples like rage or brawling is what happens when you indulge in your anger to the point where you've lost control. But bitterness, I think, is what happens when you haven't found like a healthy way to express the anger to God or to others. And it's almost like simmering in your heart. It's like, it's like infecting your heart. It's almost as if bitterness is, is like the crystallization of anger that hasn't been expressed or processed in a healthy, godly way. And in some ways, I think this, this is a bit more prevalent, particularly perhaps in the church. It can be easier to hide underexpressed anger. It could be easier to hide bitterness. But over time, it will wreak havoc. It will either do so much damage to your heart that you no longer experience the peace or the joy of God or you lose the ability just to be thankful and grateful for what you have, or you're not able to fully trust others, be vulnerable, and experience deep intimacy and community. By not processing or truly trusting in God, it's, it's now causing more destruction, more hurt than it should. And in many ways, this has been my battle with anger. When I feel that emotion in, inside of me, when I feel this rise of anger, I just bottle it up. I just let it stay inside. It just festers in my heart and it does damage to my relationship with myself, with others and with God. And it's not a good place to be. And as I've gone through a process, of, really over the last few years of reflecting on why that might be, there's usually two reasons. There's been two causes that have led me to underexpress my anger. One is, is it almost sounds counterintuitive, but it's the fear that the person that has hurt me or, or caused me to be angry will reject me or change their view of me because I've created this illusion that either this may be this victim mentality or either um, this illusion that if I respond uh, to, even in a healthy way, they'll think less of me or, I, or this image of being a person of peace will be sort of dissolved. Like that's, that's, that's what's been my experience. I've been too self-aware of what others might think, so I bottle it up. And secondly, the other reason is that in my past, it's been like I've not really felt like I'm worth def defending. It's like I've not, I've not felt like I need to stop or respond or express that anger and say, no, that's not okay, that my self-esteem has been so low that it's almost like I accept it. And someone once said to me a while ago that if you think of the times when someone has done something or said something to you that has made you angry that never should have happened and you've just not challenged it, you've let it pass you by, Imagine if you saw someone that you loved experience the same thing. And it was just a really helpful thought experiment to see that for some reason I, in my past I've allowed things to happen to me or be said to me that I would never let happen to anyone else. And I've had to go on this journey to realise 
my own worth, make space for my emotions, to realize, realize when I'm angry, not allow it to fester in my heart, not allow bitterness to grow. And through prayer and scripture, understand how God sees me and begin to figure out how do I express my anger uh, in the, for the right reasons in the right way. And I, I just say all that to, to say that this is a battle we all face. There will be different experiences that we will have in this room, but this will be a battle we have all faced at some point. And perhaps God is inviting us on a journey, just a process, perhaps an underexpression, overexpression, maybe some of the causes of why anger can get into our heart, get into our lives and wreak havoc. Maybe God is inviting us on that journey today. So anger and the old self, so often overexpressed, turning into uncontrolled rage or underexpressed, turning into bitterness that festers over time. But what about anger and the new self? What does it mean to be angry for the right reasons and in the right way? Well, let's just be reminded of what Paul says. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not let the devil get a foothold. Now, Paul is quoting here from Psalm 4. Really beautiful psalm, really, really small. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. And David is, is essentially asking God to relieve his distress. And he's calling out all of those people who love delusions and seek after false gods. And then he writes in verse 4, In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. And then the psalm concludes, I think it's just eight, eight verses. The psalm concludes with this. And I love this, this part of the psalm. You, God, have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, this, this is a psalm about trust. David is, is seeing the injustice, the idolatry, the worship of false gods, and it's made him angry. But what does he do with his anger? He doesn't rage. He doesn't become bitter. Instead, it says he trusts in the Lord. That he knows that he can sleep in peace because he trusts in God. And he's not relying on all those things that the world is relying on, the wine, the new grain, whatever it might be. He's fully relying on God so that when he may not have those things, he knows that he has a greater joy, a greater love, which means that like, there's no pride or no fear because he has God and he trusts in him. And in Paul quoting this psalm, I think he's encouraging us to do the same. When we do get angry, and we'll talk about some of the causes in just a moment, we, we don't remove God from the picture. We don't allow pride or fear to dictate. But we remember that he is ultimately in control and he sees the same things we see, but he is a greater joy than anything else this world can offer. But what could be some of the causes for anger and the new Self. Well, David's anger is instructive here. What's made him angry is idolatry, which is actually one of the things that makes God angry. Ash and Midgley write that in godly anger, we are being called to live in imitation of God, called to care about the same things God cares about and be angry over cruelty, injustice, and evil. Now, this is important because if Paul had said, don't ever be angry, like, don't, don't do that, that's not what a Christian would do. When we see the cruelty and the injustice and the evil of this world, I think if we don't allow that to affect us, I think we just become numb to the pain in this world. And therefore, we'd be less likely to express compassion or seek justice 
or live redemptively. And so if there are causes to be rightly angry about, how might we express that anger? Well, in the life of Jesus, there's a story, a well-known story that is often uh, used as an example of what's called righteous anger. Uh, It's the story of Jesus in the temple uh, where it all kicks off and he um, pushes over the temples and all that stuff. Uh, But to give some context, uh, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the Passover. This this moment happens in the final week of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection. And the first thing he does, as he's kind of celebrated on Palm Sunday into the city, the first thing he does was go to the temple. You can see this in Mark 11. He goes to the temple right in the heart of the city. And it says that when he gets there, all he does is look around. And then he leaves the city for the night. So you get this amazing celebration of Jesus arriving like a king returning to his city. All he does is go to the temple, take everything in, and then leaves. And in the morning... He returns to the temple and it says that he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now, often when I think about this moment or when this moment is portrayed in film or in TV, it's often portrayed as Jesus reacting in the moment to what's going on. It's kind of like he's shocked and it's impulsive. But that can't actually be true. Because he knew what was happening in the temple the day before. He had a whole night to think about what he was going to do. Jesus was carrying out a planned and deliberate action for a specific purpose. And if you read Mark 11, it's this whole interaction with a fig tree, uh, which on the sort of surface it looks a little bit odd, but it's actually a metaphor. Jesus is giving a metaphor for the temple system and how it's basically become corrupt. He's like, if you read the story, you see, no, this is not an impulsive moment from Jesus. This is not Jesus in an uncontrolled rage. He saw something that made him angry, but he didn't act in the moment. He had time to think through how he was going to express that anger in the right way. Now, It might not be that every time we see something cruel, unjust, or evil, that we have all night to think about how we might respond. But I do think there's a principle here that is really helpful for us. Proverbs 29 verse 11 says that a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Wise anger, I think, and if we look at this in Jesus' life, is not driven in the moment, but leads to healthy, godly action at the right time. Now, the nature of anger means that we will not always feel like we have time to fully stop, to fully process, to act redemptively, and do all these amazing things that are really easy to say but hard to put in practice. Life happens, and we can't always plan for those moments that will make us feel angry. In some ways, that's the nature of of anger. It doesn't happen, it's not premeditated, it just happens uh, in front of us. And so how do we become people in which this new self kind of anger becomes the automatic response in moments of conflict, when we see evil or when we see injustice. How do we do this? And how do we make sure that pride or fear are not the cause for our anger? How do we live out the new self and not get enticed back into the ways of the old? 
Now, Dallas, uh, Dallas Willard, in his book, uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines, give us, gives us, I think, a really helpful analogy for how to think about how we uh, grow in maturity, how we uh, put on the new self and prepare for those moments. He describes an athlete when faced with this kind of make-or-break moment, the penalty shootout or uh, the 100-meter final or the match-winning serve, whatever it might be, he says that that isn't the moment for the athlete to decide that he wants to score, that she wants to hit an ace or break a personal best. In order for an athlete to perform at their highest level in the most important moment, everything in their life needs to be shaped around achieving that goal. The training, the diet, the rest, the sacrifices, all of those things are what prepare the athlete to respond instinctively in that make or break moment. And in the same way for us, when we are faced with the rising emotion of anger, I put it to you that that is not the moment to decide to respond like Jesus. I mean, you might try to do that, but it'll be really hard, it'll be really hard to decide in that moment. Instead, all of our life needs to be consumed by the goal, firstly, of recognizing the incredible love that we have from Jesus. And then allow that to shape every part of our being so that we become people who are imitators of God to live a life of love. A whole, a whole life has to be permeated by that goal. So that when those moments come, our instinct, our default reaction is to respond as Jesus would have us respond. Here's how Willard puts it. And it's, a, it's a relatively long quote, but I think it's worth reading. He says, the secret of living the easy yoke involves living as he lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle. Following in his steps cannot be equated with behaving as he did when he was on the spot. Think about these moments where we're put on the spot and anger is rising in us. To live as Christ lived is to live as he did all of his life. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone around us, everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail and to make the way of Christ difficult and left untried. In truth, it is not the way of Christ any more than striving to act in a certain manner in the heat of the game is the way of a champion athlete. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time, not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. Putting on the new self to be um, those characteristics, those behaviours, those thought patterns, if they're to be part of our life, if we're to grow in maturity, it means that daily, in every part of life, we are inviting Jesus, we are following him, we are adopting his lifestyle. We are trying to grow in our love for others and understand and be, um, to know the love that passes, surpasses knowledge. Now again, this could take us in lots of different directions, just as the characteristics on the new self pulls us in lots of different directions, how you might actually apply making Jesus part of your everyday could pull us in lots of different directions but I just want to leave one suggestion for you just to think about to contemplate in your own life and it's just something that I've just found really helpful over the last year as I've tried to kind of get consumed by this vision that Paul lays out in this letter and it is simply just to make sure you're creating space in your day to contemplate God's love for you 
not necessarily making space to maybe ask God for things, important though that is, but making space to just reflect God's love for you. A love that you didn't earn, so pride can't grow in your heart. And a love that you cannot lose, which casts out all fear. And I did an exercise over the summer uh, where I read this prayer in Ephesians 3 over and over and over again. I wanted this like truth that Jesus loves me just to get into my every being. I wanted to understand it because I knew that I was actually living out of, in so many different areas of my life, pride or fear rather than this secure, rooted, foundational identity that I have in him. That may be one thing that you might want to do as you continue through this uh, series or perhaps as Lent comes up, you might just want to read this prayer. Like it's just so rich. This the truth of Jesus' love for you. Just get it into your being every day. And for me, when I was faced with moments that would ordinarily provoke pride or fear, my prayer, my hope for my life is that God's love for me is so ingrained in my soul, into my heart, that I then respond how Jesus would. And this is something, this is a, a life's journey. This is not something that we will see results within 24 hours. Maybe we will, I don't know. This is a life's journey, being permeated by the love of Jesus, allowing that to get, get into every part of who we are. And one sort of simple way I've been reflecting on that, I was doing that through, through my sabbatical, which is great because you have so many less, so few commitments. Uh, and then thinking about, oh, how do I integrate this into my life, coming back to work with all the responsibilities I have? One of the things that I've found helpful is um, often with the spiritual life and wanting to grow in spiritual practices like prayer or scripture, we often start with what we want to put in before we begin with what we want to take out of our life. A mistake I've often made is have this desire to, to pray more or to read scripture more. But rather than looking at my overall life and seeing what are the things that are distracting me from that or pulling me away from that, I try to squeeze into my already busy life these practices and it doesn't last very long. Before we decide, I want to include this in my life. Perhaps one thing for us is to think through what am I going to remove? What am I going to remove from my life that distracts me from the person I'm wanting to become? It could be social media, notifications, just switching off that, that kind of buzz on your phone. Could be the news, could be Netflix, could be like whatever, could be work or overwork, whatever it might look like. My encouragement is to make space to contemplate and meditate on God's love. One way to do this is to have moments of silence, contemplation, reading that Ephesians free prayer. And it's not always easy. Um, different life stages make it more challenging to have those moments. Um, but it's just so helpful because you can, when, when, it's, when it's silent, you can kind of listen to your own heart. You can listen to those anxious thoughts that rise up. You can listen to those things uh, that perhaps have made you angry. You can just understand yourself more as you spend that time reflecting on God's love for you and bring them to Jesus. It allows us to just have the space to recognize where there is bitterness in our hearts or where we have been angry at our family or whatever it might be. It just gives us that, that time and space to really reflect on who we are and who we're becoming. One of the amazing things about Jesus, about the church, is that we have so many practices and tools to help us redeem both the consequences of anger but also help us become the kind of new self type of person that Paul describes. 
You know, if there's moments in your life where you know that anger has got the better of you and the nature of anger and, and all this stuff is often the, the people that we're angry at most are the people we actually love the most and, and vice versa. If, you, if you're living with that kind of guilt, well, confession is an amazing practice that we have as the church. Just to confess it to a loved one, maybe the person that you hurt. Uh, doing it in community, it's an amazing practice, amazing tool. Or perhaps if you're kind of holding on to anger, if you're holding on to a moment where that's still sort of got its grips on you or maybe you're still holding on to it, we have the gift of forgiveness. It's just an amazing thing that releases us from that grip. There's moments that we're holding on to that we haven't been able to fully heal. Well, perhaps the first step maybe for you is to forgive. And we do this with wisdom and in community and, and all that stuff. Now, living out this new self-vision, trying to live out the reconciliation that Jesus has already given us, is challenging. The nature of human relationships, the nature of being part of a community like this, uh, means that it can be messy, it can be hard, and it will take a lot of grace to put into practice. If we're to become the people that live out this vision of the new humanity, it's going to take a lot of grace. But what an opportunity we have to become people of peace, people of joy, people who have the resources to deal with our anger and the moments in our past that have hurt us or holding on to us. We have these resources because Jesus has given them to us. And what an opportunity for all of us in whatever place we find ourselves tomorrow, in work or in family, to bring some of this new self, to bring this new way of living, this new kingdom, this reconciliation that Jesus has already brought. What an opportunity for us to do that and bring that to the places we find ourselves. Just before I, I pray, I think perhaps there's just this invitation. Maybe this is a turning point moment for some of us to just let go of some unresolved anger, maybe some shame, and just respond to the love that God has for you, his grace and forgiveness. Why don't we pray? Oh, Jesus, Lord, I just thank you so much that you love us. Like this incredible reality, this incredible truth. That your love for us is so deep, and so wide, so long and so high. Lord, would you permeate that in our being? Would it become more true for us than, than ever before? Would we continually understand and accept the love that you have for us? And Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters here that if there is any unresolved anger or just pain or shame, Lord Jesus, I pray that your love would be like this healing balm over their life. Lord, that your spirit would come. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your life, for your death, for your resurrection. We have life in all its fullness. Help us, Lord Jesus, to daily live that out in our life. Help us to become people of love. Help us to reflect the love that you have given us, Lord Jesus. I pray these things in your precious name.